Welcome, everybody, to an exciting, very exciting episode of Baseball and Barbecue. This is episode number five, and we couldn't be more excited to have as our first guest ever, Bob Kendrick, the president of the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. Bob, thank you very much for joining us. Man, it is an absolute pleasure. I feel honored to be one of the first guests and an opportunity to talk about baseball and barbecue from the barbecue capital of the world, Kansas City. <laughs> you are, yes, you're, you're the... You're, I'm Leonard Aberman. This is Jeff Cohen, and you are the perfect guest because you, you, you basically we kill we kill two birds with one stone. So we are thrilled to have you. And and before oh, it is an absolute pleasure. Thank you, guys. Bob. Um, so the the museum itself. Take us. I mean. How did it start? Uh, I, I saw some things about it. Um, take us into yeah. the, the, the beginnings of the museum. It's a fascinating story within its own right, guys, because we started the Negro Leagues Museum in a tiny one-room office space. And I mean, it was a tiny office space that had basically a conference room table and guys like the late, great Buckle Neal and other former Negro Leaguers who were still with us at that time literally took turns paying the monthly rent to keep the little office open. And that's how we got started. And it allowed us to build enough momentum to the point that in, that was in 1990. In 1997, we moved into a, what we call our permanent home at Historic 18th and Vine. So we went from a one-room office to a 10,000-square-foot state-of-the-art exhibition that chronicles the story of black baseball in America in general and in the Negro Leagues, professional Negro Leagues specifically. And so it has been nothing short of amazing, the rise to prominence of a little museum that really no one gave any chance of succeeding because you have to remember when we decided to anchor here at Historic 18 Divine in Kansas City there was nothing else here it had become like a lot of urban areas and you can trace this you can go back and look at whatever wherever you had successful black baseball you had thriving black economies and 18th and I was no exception with the great Kansas City Monarchs calling this area home and then when we lost the Negro Leagues we lost a lot of that infrastructure that supported those black businesses so a lot of those areas have been left abandoned 18th and I again was no exception and so when we built this museum here it was against the, the best wishes of a lot of people who were supporters of ours because they were concerned about who would come see it there was nothing else there there was no built in foot traffic and as I always say, through the infinite wisdom of the late great Buckle Deal, who said, this is where we will build this museum. After all, the museum now operates about a block away from where the Negro Leagues were formed in Kansas City in 1920. So it really made sense that a museum dedicated to the subject matter would be right here at historic 18th and Vine in Kansas City because Kansas City is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. And so that set us on our journey. We haven't looked back since here. We are now 28 years later, now recognized as America's National Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So it has been a tremendous journey for our museum. Well, that, that is just fantastic, uh, Mr. Kendrick. Uh, it's definitely uh, on my bucket list to get there uh, one, one day. 
Um, but let me uh, ask you about a couple of players that I've uh, I've researched. Okay, um, we did a segment a couple of weeks ago on John Montgomery Ward, and we found out he tried to talk the New York Giants owner into signing George Stovey in 1887 from the Negro Leagues. I guess it wasn't really Negro Leagues, but they had teams going on. Uh, owners yeah, and players, yeah, black baseball teams at that time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Owners and players, they protested, so he never signed. So my, my question is really two-part. Um, can you give it, give us a brief history of when the Negro League started? And could you give us some background on George, John, George Stovey? I wonder how baseball in America would have changed had he been the uh, been playing baseball and in, in, in integrated in, before 1990s. 1900s, well, you know, I, I say. Because the, the Negro Leagues, the professional organized Negro Leagues, and there had been a couple of efforts that had failed to create, to give black baseball an organized structure. And they had all failed, and it was only until Ruth Foster in 1920 creates what was became the Negro National League. As a matter of fact, tomorrow, February 13th, marks the 98th anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues in Kansas City. Oh. And and so it was the first successful organized black baseball league. The league then remarkably would go on to operate for 40 years, from 1920 until 1960. Wow. Now, Jackie Robinson breaks baseball's color barrier in 1947. 13 years after Jackie breaks the color barrier, the Negro Leagues are still operating, and in some parts of the country, operating with a great deal of success because it took Major League Baseball 12 years before every Major League team had at least one black baseball player. The Boston Red Sox, of course, become the last team to integrate right. in 1959 when they signed Popsy Green. And, and so that is what afforded the Negro Leagues an opportunity to continue to do business long after Jackie had broken the color barrier because it took so long to complete the integration cycle. But by 1960, the league ceased operations because by then, as you can well imagine, the best young black stars had moved into the major leagues or into that minor league system, mm-hmm. and there was no replenishing system. And so, you know, but you go back and you think about the fact that this could have happened well before, you know, if they signed George Stovey. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you go back to Moses Fleetwood Walker, who was first known black to play on what would be considered a major league team. And this goes back again to the 1883. About 1883, they had Moses Fleetwood Walker. Didn't last very long. You had guys like George Stovey, who again, people had seen these guys play and knew that they could play in the major leagues. It was just no way to convince the powers to be to allow them to play. So Moses Fleetwood Walker plays... Uh, on a team, on a Toledo team back in about 1883, and it didn't last long. You know, he basically, you know, got let go because guys like Cap Hanson, who was an outstanding baseball player, led a gentleman's agreement that ultimately banned blacks from playing on white professional teams or white major league teams. And so that would create that ban for the next six decades. But George Stoney was an outstanding pitcher in the 19th century. You know, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of information on the guys like Stovey because all the contemporary Negro leaguers never saw them play. So the guys that saw them play have long passed. And and so when you hear the guys like Buck O'Neill and Monty Irvin, these guys talk is about their contemporaries, guys who really played in the 30s and 40s in the Negro League. So that very early era of the Negro Leagues, 
if it's not for the work of Negro League historians, we pretty much lose that. Mm -hmm. let, let me ask you about uh, Buck O'Neill. I have done, uh, I've seen, what a great man he was. Um, and I know... I saw. I know you have a, had a very close relationship with him. He's the reason that museum is in existence. Um, he, a fascinating man. One of the things that I saw was at uh, the Kansas City Stadium. What Kaufman Stadium? Kaufman Stadium. They have a Buck O'Neill legacy seat. Yes. Okay. And I saw that the first person to sit in it was uh, Buck O'Neill's um, brother Warren. Yes. And uh, have have you ever sat in that seat? I've had the I've had the great honor of sitting in it twice. Uh, I sat in it the first time the the year that they started the program, and it just happened to be on my birthday. Yeah. And and then when the Kansas City hosted the All Star Game, the Royals asked me to to sit in the seat again at the Futures Game, and so I was very honored to do so. And as close as I was to Buck, it was still a tremendous honor to sit in his seat. And I tell people all the time: every now and then, an idea comes along, and you wish it was your idea. Now, I, you know, twenty years from now, I'll lie and swear it was my idea, but I can tell you that it wasn't. Dan Glass, who's president of Kansas City Royals, came up with this brilliant way to remember Buck. And so everybody was concerned about what would happen to Buck's seat. Buck had been sitting in that seat for years. First as a scout for the Royals, and he still maintained his title as scout, even though he really wasn't scouting anymore, although he'd sit there and still chart pitches. It was more PR, taking pictures, signing autographs, being Buck, being the Buck O'Neill that we all love so dearly. And, and so when Buck passed away in 2006, the question was, what would the Royals do with his seat? Some wanted the seat to come to the Negro Leagues Museum. Others wanted to leave the seat unoccupied as a tribute to Buck. And then Dan Glad came up with the brilliant idea of recognizing ordinary people who do extraordinary things to help others. That's Buck O'Neill, to a T. And so for every single Kansas City Royal home game since 2007, someone in our community who's helping others so selflessly gets to sit in Buck's seat. And I can tell you this, guys, since they implemented the program in 2007, no one has missed sitting in Buck's seat. It means something to them. And it was a brilliant way to perpetuate the legacy of Buck O'Neill, to keep his memory alive. And so it, it excites me. It was such a brilliant idea. Like I said, I lie and swear it was my idea some 20, 25 years from now. There won't be a whole lot of people that argue any different, but it was dang <laughs> was certainly uh, a true gentleman and, and deservingly so and I know uh, they have the Lifetime Achievement Award given out and I think Cooperstown every uh, every three years or so yeah that's, that's terrific yeah. we saw we saw his yeah. interview we see his interviews and you know the, the man is just bursting with excitement and, and, and smiling all the time and uh, just a great great ambassador to baseball yeah we saw him on the of course on the Ken Burns documentary uh, I love the story that he told uh, about Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson facing each other. Oh, it's funny, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, one of my favorite stories. One of my favorite Buckle Neal stories. And, and he just had such a genuine joy about him. And, and this joy was infectious. 
And, and so people oftentimes ask me what I remember most about Buck. And, you know, you've touched on some of those things. He became a star overnight in Ken Burns' documentary. As a matter of fact, he stole the show in Ken's epic documentary on the history of baseball. America fell alone with Buck O'Neill. Yes, he was absolutely. 82 years old at that time. And as I always tell people, he was this very charming, gentle man who was telling these wonderful stories to baseball fans that they'd never heard. And he did it with a twinkle in his eye and a smile that lit up the screen and America fell in love with Buck. Oh. And as he would tell me, he said, Bob, I've been telling these stories for 40 years and nobody ever listened. And then Ken Burns <laughs> gave him a platform where people listened. And at that point, it jettisoned a whole new career for him. You know, he was blessed to live another 12 years and he went all over this country preaching the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of his museum to any and everybody who would listen. But I tell people all the time, the thing I remember most about Buck, you always felt better leaving Buck than you did when you came to see him. And it ain't too many people that impressed that upon you in that manner. Uh, you just felt better. He just had that joy. It was an almost a youthful, unbridled joy. And it, it, it was, like I said, it was just very infectious. Absolutely, you know, just just watching him get the interview and look looking at his face, you can tell the joy that that, it, that comes out of him. That's just terrific. Yeah, I have yeah. I have another question. Um, just as a coincidence, the Sunday paper here in New York had a two page article headlined "The Best Pitch You Never Heard Of," and it was about John Donaldson. Can John you, Donaldson, yes, sir. Can you talk about him and his chance of being enshrined into a uh, baseball Hall of Fame? Well, I, I think if, it, if the opportunity opens, and we believe that the Hall of Fame in 2020 will reopen the door for Negro League players, which gives a guy like John Donaldson an opportunity to do so. Thankfully, the Donaldson Network has done substantial research. And we're talking about one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Uh, not in black baseball, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. We're talking about a guy who has over 400 verifiable wins and counting. Uh, some of the pitching feats were absolutely incredible. Back-to-back no-hitters and games of 30-plus strikeouts. And I mean, you, you, they're just eye-dropping kinds of numbers. And unlike a lot that is associated with Negro Leagues, which is based around lower legend, this is quantifiable. Right, Thanks yeah. to the work of Pete, Pete Gordon and the John Donaldson Network, who've gone through years building this research, documenting this incredible picture. J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Kansas City Monarchs, and John Donaldson was a part of his organization for quite some time. J.L. Wilkinson called Donaldson the greatest picture he ever saw. Now, to put it in perspective, <laughs> J.L. Wilkinson had... Hall of Famer Satchel Page, Bullet Joe Logan, Jose Mendez, Andy Cooper, Hilton Smith playing for him. And he said that John Donaldson is the greatest pitcher he ever had. I think that speaks volumes. That, that, that uh, Donaldson was amazing, and, and I'm so glad that we're able to bring these amazing feats to life through the work of the Donaldson Network. The mm-hmm. you know. Bob, um, doing the research, you know, uh, Rube Foster, Satchel Paige, and John Donaldson all uh, could be considered 
the greatest pitchers that ever lived. You have an oh, opinion, you have an opinion and, on? And, and that's the beauty. That's the beauty of the Negro Leagues. Right. And, and so you're absolutely, you know, it just depends on who you like and what you like. Right. Now for me, you know, there will never be a pitcher greater than Satchel Page in my eyes. Because what Satchel Page brought to the table was more than just great stuff. Satchel Paige brought this charisma. He brought this longevity that is basically second to none. And so when you combine the longevity, the great stuff, and the showmanship, there'll never, ever, ever be another Leroy Satchel Paige because he becomes the standard in which everybody else in the Negro Leagues is measured. So what you'll oftentimes hear, you'll say, well, such and such... His fastball was as fast as Satchel Page. Or he was as good as Satchel Page. And so when you become the standard in which everybody else measures up to, you must be pretty special. And Satchel Page was very special. Uh, and, and man, you know, he could sell it, but he could back it up. And I think that's what made it. And we don't know how old he was. Right? Right. Because <laughs> when you add the lore and the legend surrounding him, there'll never be another Leroy Satchel Page. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, it was, yeah, incredible. Um, Now, at your museum, speaking of Rube Foster uh, being a great pitcher, I saw you have an annual uh, Andrew Rube Foster lecture. We do. We do a lecture because, again, I think sometimes lost in this romantic notion of all these great athletes who overcame tremendous social adversity to play the game they love is number one that this was a thriving business enterprise that really was started with the genius of Rube Foster. Rube Foster, guys, is one of the greatest baseball minds this sport has ever seen and virtually few know anything about him, even though he is rightfully enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So Negro Leagues Baseball was big business, the third largest black-owned business in this country, and it all starts with the leadership of Root Foster. And and so we created an annual lecture event that celebrates leadership in sports, and and we we call it the Root Foster Lecture. We also give the Root Foster Legacy Award to the baseball executive of the year for both the National and American League. And so, you know, we want to try and create a way in which the legacy of these great athletes continues to play on with the work that we do here in the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and then also attaching it to the game the way it's being played today. And so Ruth Foster is someone that you should know about. You talked about it. He was a great pitcher in the early era of black baseball. As a matter of fact, he is credited with having invented what we now know to be the screwball. Back then it was called a fadeaway. And Rue perfected this pitch. So much so, guys, that the great Major League manager, John McGraw, snuck Rube Foster into his camp so that Rube Foster could teach Christy Matheson how to throw the screwball. Wow, I mean, that, that, that's great. Do that pitch all the way into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He learned that pitch from Rube Foster, and they never gave Foster credit for it. You know, it's funny, I was just going to ask you one question about the museum, but now you brought up John McGraw. Uh, I saw, I think it was in the Ken Burns documentary that when John McGraw died, I think his wife found a list of Negro League players that he wanted to, that he wanted to bring into uh, the game, that he wanted to integrate into the game. 
So right. he wanted to do it. He wanted to desperately do it. But again, he knew he would be ostracized. Right. You know, right. It, it was like at some point you just weigh and say, well, the risk is just not worth the reward. And, and this was pretty much the, the standard through that era of Major League Baseball as it was being as it was still segregated. You know, you go back to the early '40s and Clark Griffith over with the Washington Senators. Now he's watching. Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson play for the great homestead Grays Day, filling up the ballpark in his ballpark. They're outdrawing the Senators. And he's watching Gibson hit balls where no mere mortal had ever hit them in his ballpark. And so he wanted to sign both Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson well before Branch Rickey makes the move to sign Jackie Robinson. But again, he got scared. He knew he would be ostracized by his peers. And so he wouldn't he wouldn't try to do it. Wouldn't try to do it, and Ricky courageously steps out, and with the help of Happy Chandler, they're able to orchestrate this move to sign Jackie Robinson. There's no question that Branch Ricky knew he had the backing of the commissioner when he made this move because the other owners basically voted against it. But he knew that he had the, the that Chandler had the power to overturn the owners' vote. And they pretty much orchestrated that move, and, and, and it ultimately led to Jackie Robinson joining the Brooklyn Dodgers. But there were other guys who wanted to do this well before then. They just got scared. Right, right, wow. Uh, let me just take a step back a second, Bob. Uh, uh, one thing that Len and I like to do in the podcast is to talk about lesser-known ballplayers. Uh, Len and I were both born in the 60s, and so we, we know the names of some of the famous Negro, Negro League players like Josh Gibson, Coop Papa Bell, Buck O'Neill, Stassel Page. I'm going to name a couple of players uh, that we really, uh, really don't know of. If you can just give us a little background on, on him, if you don't mind. Uh, first name I came up with it was Newt Allen. Oh, yeah, Buck O'Neill says a first ballot Hall of Famer, the most dominant second baseman of his generation. And Buck used to walk around with a little list in his pocket of those who he had hoped he could get in the Hall of Fame before he passed away. And Newt Allen was right there on the top of that list. Newt Allen was, was a great second baseman and was a prominent part of so many of those great Kansas City Monarch teams. Wow. How about uh, Lorenzo Piper Davis? Oh, man, Piper Davis, you know, another great one down there in Birmingham. And Piper Davis also was real close to Buck because they both did some scouting together. But Piper Davis, you know, he took Willie Mays under his wing when Willie Mays joined the Birmingham Black Barons. Really? Piper Davis was an incredible baseball player who, you know, unfortunately the color barrier falls a little too late for him, as it did with a lot of those great players in the Negro League, and as you talked about, some of those lesser-known guys, but Piper Davis also became a great scout, and uh, I remember stories of Buck talking about the, the two of them scouting down in the deep south in areas where a lot of the white scouts would not go, looking for talent, and they found a lot of talent in some of those areas, and one of the funniest stories ever is uh, the two of them in Mississippi mistakenly looking for a high school baseball game and end up at a Ku Klux Klan rally. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I tell people all the time, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, and so they, as they are entering the ballpark, Buck says, you ask the guy standing at the gate, says, this is where the ball game is. And the guy says, yeah, this is where the ball game is. And so they pull into the stadium parking lot, and Piper Davis is saying to Buck, saying, well, Buck, I don't think this is a ball game. He says, 
says, oh, Python, come on, man, ain't nothing but a ball game. And so as they pull in and they go into the entrance uh, to get into the where the field of play is, they see this flatbed truck that's got a uh, barbecue spit on it, and they're roasting a pig, and there they are, the Grand Dragon and everybody in full regalia. Buck looks at Piper, he says, Piper, this ain't no ball game. They get back in the car, and they spinning wheels getting out of there, and Buck said, the guy at the gate, he doubled over in laughter, but it's one of, it was just a hilarious story, and, and again, I tell you, you can't make this stuff up. The truth is so much better than fiction, but, uh, you know, Piper Davis is a great name that people don't know a whole lot about but they should. Well, I'm glad you talked to him about us. Talked talk about him to us because that, that's a great story and, you know, he should be, get, be recognized more often oh, yeah. as well. How about uh, Ted Radcliffe? And they call him Double Duty. Double Duty. One of the most colorful guys, no pun intended, in Negro League history from Mobile, Alabama. I don't know what they put in the water in Mobile. But they had some heck of a ball players out of Mobile, including Satchel and the great Double Duty Radcliffe, who oftentimes caught Satchel. And he earned his nickname Double Duty when the great sports writer Damon Runyon saw Duty catch a Satchel Page shutout in the first game of a doubleheader. And in the second game of the doubleheader, Duty took the mound and threw a shutout. And Runyon said that it was worth the price of two admissions. He was nicknamed Double Duty until the day he died in Chicago in 2005 at age 103. Uh, he was, one of, again, one of the most colorful guys in Negro League, or I think in baseball history. He would inscribe on his chest protector, Thou shalt not steal. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's great. You know, you, you mentioned Mobile. You mentioned Mobile, Alabama. I know Leonard and I are big Met fans, and uh, two of our favorite players came from out of Mobile, Alabama: uh, Cleon Jones and Tommy Agee. Obviously, it was after the Negro League, yeah, but uh, you know, they were two of our favorite yeah, that came from Cleon that area. Jones, Tommy Agee, Amos Otis, Ozzie Smith, Billy Williams. You know, the list just goes on and on of legendary Mobilians. Uh, like I said, I don't know what they put in the water, man, uh, but it was something pretty special down there. And, uh, you know, when you talk about Double Duty Radcliffe and Satchel Page, you're talking about two of the greatest, though. Yeah, and I have to ask you about one more player since he and I share the same last name. Jim Cohen, a pitcher of the Indianapolis Clowns. Braves, who of course became 
the Atlanta the Braves. Braves. Yep. But Henry Aaron's illustrious career began in the Negro Leagues with the Indianapolis Clowns in 1952. But the Clowns had great teams. And, and so, yeah, they put on a show. You're going to be thoroughly entertained. They had guys like Goose Tatum and Richard King Tut who entertained uh you know, the fans and Goose Tatum, but see, Goose Tatum was an outstanding baseball player. People probably remember that name because he was a great basketball player. Goose Tatum is in the Basketball Hall of Fame, but Goose Tatum was a slick fielding first baseman, and the man had some of the longest arms I've ever seen on a human being, but he could flat out pick it at first base, but he was so long and gangly, loose as a goose, and that's why he got the name Goose Tatum, Goose, and, and so he could just walk on the field and do nothing, and people would erupt into laughter, but the clowns had a couple of guys who had entertained before, during, and after games, and, and so that's the piece that Hollywood kind of focused on, and it would, would, would mislead you to believe that they couldn't play. No, these guys could play, and they always had good teams, and several years they had great teams, and so, yeah, and that's the piece that, again, is sometimes misconstrued, and we try to bring that story to life when people come here to the Negro Leagues Museum. And uh, yeah, (laughs) you're perfect with the segue because I wanted to continue on the the museum itself, which I cannot wait to come to. I I mean, Jeff and I, we have to road trip uh, and get to the museum because everything I've heard and seen, it looks incredible. Um, You have the Hall of Game there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? This year, June 9th, will mark our fifth annual Hall of Game celebration. And Hall of Game was an idea that I came up with again five years ago that I thought it would be cool to recognize former Major League greats who played the game the way they played it in the Negro League. So you played it with passion. You played it with determination. You obviously played it with a high level of skill, but you also played the game with a little flair or swag, as the kids will say today. You had to have that if you were going to play in the Negro League. And so each year we induct a class that we believe embody the spirit and that signature style that made Negro Leagues baseball a fan favorite. Again, as the late Buck O'Neill would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand because you might miss something that you ain't never seen before. And, and so when you went to a Negro Leagues game, you were going to be thoroughly entertained. They knew that this was entertainment. And so Buck says the major leaguers would oftentimes accuse them of showboating. You know what? A guy would go in the hole, dive, flip the ball behind his back to start the double play. Well, today that's a sports center top ten highlight Absolutely. every day of the week. Oh, yeah. yeah, but back then, as Buck would say, they would be called showboating. But as Buck would also say, it's only showboating when you can't do it. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> yeah. and so this this event and this this induction ceremony honors those that we believe embody that spirit, and it has been extraordinarily well received and. It's our way to connect to the game as well. And so there hopefully will be a number of those who will be eventually inducted as honorary Negro Leaguers for the way that they played. As we tell people all the time, they were good enough that they could have played in the Negro Leagues. And it's one of the, I think, one of the highest forms of compliment. You know, Dave Winfield, who was in our first class of inductees when we started the Hall of Game. There for him, the ultimate compliment was when he would spend time with Negro League players and they would say to him, you could have played with us. And 
because I, we want people to understand just how good these leagues were. I think sometimes people just believe that if it didn't happen in the major leagues, then it didn't happen. But we're here to tell you that it did. And it happened in a majestic way. These guys could play. They were outstanding baseball players. Oh, yeah. And, and, and not just guys, right? You had a couple of uh, women in the Negro Leagues, right? Yes, it's, it's funny that you would say that because tomorrow we unveil, tomorrow, which goes to February 13th, we unveil a new expanded exhibit called Beauty of the Game. And it celebrates the women of the Negro Leagues. There were three pioneering women who played in the Negro Leagues. Tony Stone, Mamie Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan. All played in the 1950s. As a matter of fact, Tony Stone took the roster place of Henry Aaron. So when the Braves signed Aaron away at the end of the 52 season, the Clowns with that next season hired Tony Stone to take his place on the roster. All three were very gifted athletes. And so essentially the Negro Leagues helped break gender barriers in the 1950s. There was also a female owner in Essen Manley. Yeah, they make they make such a you know league of their own the the movie right with the the women league. Yeah. Uh, but they they had the women's league. This was they were playing with the men. Uh, Mamie Peanuts, with the men. Uh, Mamie Peanuts Johnson, right? Who who I was fascinated to learn about. Uh, she had a pitching record of what thirty three and eight, I think about. Thirty three and eight. Right? In her two seasons with the Clowns, and you know, she just passed away last December. And she batted, and, and she was a great hitter. They just, you know, they, they were great athletes. They all three were tremendous athletes. And Tony Stone, I was reading a quote that Tony Stone offered up. The first time she faced Satchel, and, and Satchel, everybody, you know, Satchel was the kind of guy she said would tell you, he would ask you where you want it. He said, hey, King, where do you want it? Mm-hmm. You know, do you want it on, do you want it up, you know, chest high? You want it down the middle? Just tell me where you want it, and I'm going to put it where you want it. And she just said, well, just don't hurt me. <laughs> and so, uh, so Satchel would wind up, throw that big foot up in the air, mm-hmm. and, and as Buck would say, Satchel Page's foot would block out the sun, and then he just fired BBs at you. And so she, she's sitting there shaking in the batter's box, and he fires one in, she swings, 
she hits it over the second base, gives a bloop single. She said it was the happiest moment in her life. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, Bob, if if Jackie Robinson wasn't the player selected um, to break the color barrier, who do you think uh, would have been another good choice for that? Well, you know, and he wasn't the first choice. The first choice was Monty Irvin. And, and, and see, people don't understand that Monty Irvin was a superstar player in the Negro Leagues. There was absolutely nothing that Monty Irvin could not do on the baseball diamond. But Monty had just gotten back from World War II. And so he is suffering from what we now would call post-traumatic syndrome. Mm-hmm. And he was having contract squabbles with Effa Manley. And, and so he basically turned down the opportunity, and that's when Branch Rickey put his focus and turned his attention to Jackie Robinson, who was playing for the Kansas City Monarchs. So, yeah, were there other guys that could have done it? Absolutely. But you had to have the right guy. Because as I tell our guests all the time, failure was not an option on either side of the equation. Mm. If whomever they selected couldn't take the abuse, the experiment is over. If they can't play, the experiment is over. And who knows how long it would have been before another black player would have gotten that opportunity to play in the major leagues. And so, you know, Branch Rickey had a double difficult task of identifying that right guy as he set his sights to break baseball's color barrier. There's no question that Jackie Robinson was the right guy. But could there, could, were, there, were there other guys that could have done it? Absolutely. That's great, yeah. Uh, you know, Jackie Robinson, and Mont- we know Monty Irvin, he, uh, as you said, a great, great ball player. Uh, I want to ask you about today's baseball. Uh, there's been a very, major leagues right now have about, what, 8% uh, of African-American ball players. It's at the lowest level yeah. in, in many years. Uh, could you uh, give us your thoughts on why that's happening and in any way we can uh, reverse that trend? You know, it's really fascinating to me, and we've been addressing this for almost a decade as we started to see this decline occurring, as you mentioned, about 8%, which, again, when you hear 8%, I don't know if the number really registers, and it was only last year when I was sitting out having breakfast with my good friend Tony Clark, who has the Players Association, and when he quantified what that 8% actually meant. They broke camp last year in Major League Baseball with 62 American-born blacks. Wow. 62. That's, well, that's, that's, yeah. that that's number, a shame. That number I found staggering. That's absolutely. a shame. Absolutely. And, and so, yeah, we got an issue here, but I commend Major League Baseball and its Players Association for understanding that there is an issue and starting to implement things to help reverse those numbers. Now, what we understand is that baseball, because of the... It's, it's a very meticulous process. So it, it's going to take a while before we see these numbers reversed, simply because it takes a while to get to the major leagues. You get drafted, and then it takes you three to five years, you know, and that's on the fast track to get there. So it's going to be a while before we see the pendulum shift the other way. Now, we've been trying to address what happened, and I think there are a number of issues. Some of them are economic in nature. Some of them are socioeconomic in in nature. But what we've seen happen to baseball, baseball went from being 
a blue-collar sport to a country club sport. And so when it's played today in an organized fashion, it's a very expensive sport to play. And so, yes, there are some that have been priced out of our sport because the day is sad to say of Sandlot, baseball is over. And, and you also have to understand that basketball, the NFL, and the NBA have simply outmarketed baseball. Because what you love about baseball is its tradition. Mm-hmm. What has hurt baseball is its tradition. And so it's been a double-edged sword, and basketball and football have simply outmarketed baseball. And there's this lure of instant riches with those two sports as opposed mm-hmm. to going through the minor leagues and then working your way to the big leagues. And so we're excited because here in Kansas City, through the diligence of our general manager, Dayton Moore, They've created what is called the Kansas City Major League Baseball Urban Youth Academy. And it will open here officially in the spring. It is an incredible complex that has a 40,000 square foot indoor training facility and four baseball, four diamonds, two regular, two regulation size baseball diamonds, a softball field and a youth baseball diamond. And it is going to create, create opportunities for urban kids to play this game. And so what we've essentially done is taking away the economic barrier that would have prevented so many kids from playing this game. Uh, this game gets to be very expensive with league fees, traveling teams, sure. uniforms, everything. The equipment is very, very expensive. Mm-hmm. And so what we're attempting to do is take away that economic barrier, and hopefully kids will fall in love with this game again, and that we can develop some potential major league baseball prospect somewhere down the future but again it's not our sole goal to you know to develop major leaguers we want kids to fall in love with this game and then identify with other opportunities that are part of this world of baseball as well but uh, you know we're certainly excited about that i'm excited about it because this facility is right behind the negro leagues baseball museum and so it gives us a chance to bring those young people into this museum where they can see people who look just like them who played this game as well as anyone ever played this game. But guys, not only did they play the game, they owned teams. They were managers. They were coaches. They were team physicians. They were traveling secretaries. They fulfilled every aspect of the business of baseball. And that is important as well as we try to help mold these young people to understand that there are careers in baseball that doesn't necessarily have to mean you own the field. And so we want to prepare them to compete for those opportunities as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Bob, um, you know, we, we have to talk about barbecue, I'm, but I'm I'm so enjoying this. It's like I don't even want to skip to barbecue. I just want to keep going with the baseball. I, I have so many notes that I have here that we haven't even touched on, but I am going to I'm going to ask you about barbecue. Um, you are in I, I know when we first spoke, uh, you, you made me laugh because I, I I said, you know, the podcast is called Baseball and Barbecue. And of course, you're in Kansas City, which is the one of the homes of barbecue. And I mentioned, well, there's Texas and the Carolinas and Kansas City. <laughs> and you said to me, there's only Kansas City barbecue. Kansas City. 
Uh, it is special. It is special. You know, a lot of times you hear about all these great places and you think, oh, they're not that good. And I used to think the same thing before I left Georgia to come here because I grew up on Southern-style barbecue, you know, a lot of pulled pork and those kinds of things, more vinegary, peppery sauce. Mm, and that right. Kind of thing. That's what I grew up with. And then I got to Kansas City, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I've heard about this Kansas City barbecue. It can't be that good. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is that good. And, and so it is not hype. It is legit. Um, no, we've got some great barbecue establishments here, including Gates Barbecue, which is one of my favorites. And, and Ollie Gates, who owns Gates Barbecue, has been an instrumental player in the Negro Leagues. And as a matter of fact, he's helping build the Buckle Hill Education and Research Center with us right now and he and Buck were longtime friends and so after Buck passed away he wanted to ensure that Buck's dream of building his education research center would not die when Buck died and so he has a chain of barbecue restaurants here that is certainly outstanding but there are so many great places in Kansas City to eat barbecue oh yeah now okay so all right you have a favorite do you have a favorite I think place? Gates is probably Gates, Gates is probably number one on my list. Like I said, I have to always say that I'm biased because he's helping me build right. the Buckle Bill <laughs> Education. <laughs> well, research center. But even if he wasn't, I think Gates is my favorite. And, and then uh, you know, number two, three, and four, you could almost throw them, toss them in a hat and pull them out, and you couldn't go wrong. Uh, there, there are some great places uh, and some new entries that have come into the marketplace, places like Q39 and Kansas City Joe's. Of course, the legendary Arthur Bryant's, which is the oldest barbecue establishment in Kansas City. Right. Uh, but little hole-in-the-walls like LC's, which is great. So, And then, of course, you've got the more contemporary barbecue places like Jack Stack's, which is you know a little bit different. Uh, because you go in and they got a wait staff, so you know you don't get the real barbecue experience. But the food is good. You know you can't go into a place and come out. You got to come into a barbecue place smelling like barbecue when you oh, eat. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so you really get the barbecue experience. So when you go into a barbecue place, okay, uh, in Kansas City. Uh, I know famous for burnt ends, uh, ribs, um, uh, you know, what, you, what do you order? What, do you, what are you ordering? What's your number one order when you're going in? Yeah, at, at Gates, I have more times than not, there are a couple things, you know, there are a couple things that are my favorites, and that is the brisket sandwich, and it's a... Uh, what we all call, a, for me, a beef on bun on bread. Uh, just the old plain white bread, so you can see that barbecue sauce soaked through it, mm. as opposed to the bun. And and the uh, baked beans, Kansas City has a unique style of doing baked beans, which I don't think is duplicated anywhere else in the country. People love them here. Uh, when they come in and they taste them for the first time, they are exquisite. I also like the short end ribs at Gates. If I'm going to do burn ends, I like the burn ends at, at LC's. Also, uh, Casey Joe's has great burn ends as well. And so it depends on which on which dish that I'm getting. Gates has a very unique sausage that can't find it anywhere else other than Gates have never seen it or tasted this particular kind of sausage anywhere else it has a little spicy flavor to it but it's outstanding and so you know it just depends on what dish that I that I want on that particular day 
I, I tell you that uh, I just added something else to my bucket list. And <laughs> when, I, when I'm in Kansas City, going to the Negro oh, League yeah. Museum and having dinner at Gates. Oh yeah. The so <laughs> the, uh, the you like the, the I know they have the thick tomato based barbecue sauce, right? They it, I think molasses is. To, it's, yeah, you, what you find here is a little bit sweeter sauce, and so yeah, it's uh, it has a little bit of molasses and some maybe even a little honey uh, in that mixture. But what I what I enjoyed about Gates is Gates probably has the most unique. Gates and Bryant's probably have the most non Kansas City barbecue sauce, even though both you know added a sweeter sauce to their lineup. But their traditional or classic sauce. Um, is not as sweet as some of the other typical Kansas City sauces. Uh, and, and so Gates in particular gives you a different flavor with their original sauce. And you can get a, an extra hot and you can get a, a sweet, what they call the sweet and mild sauce. But the, the classic sauce to me is the, is the real winner. Now you have the, in Kansas City, which I, I love competition barbecue, um, and you have the biggest Competition barbecue oh, yeah. uh, in the country. American Royal. Yeah, American, American Royal, Royal, right? It is amazing. You've been to it. It is. Amazing. It, it is oh my goodness! It, I mean, it is amazing. I mean, because it draws some of the you know most talented competition barbecue makers in the world who end up in Kansas City showcasing their wares, and so. You know, what better place to compete for a barbecue title than to come to Kansas City? Oh, yeah. and, and they do. They and come. man, I'm telling you, when you walk through, you walk through that, through the area, and it is just absolutely amazing the smell of so many different styles of barbecue and the smoke and everything. Mm. And it, it, it's impressive. It, it really is impressive. They come from other countries to compete in that. Also. They come from all over yeah. to compete. And, you know, that's the thing that's so exciting. We've seen barbecue take on a whole new level now. And so when we get a restaurant in Kansas City now called Q39, it, it takes on a more gourmet kind of style of barbecue. So they've carved their niche out that way with some different um, styles and techniques and elements that they bring to the table and, and again it is good too I enjoy it uh, but again for me if I'm going to go traditional I'm going to go to a place like a, a Gates Arthur Bryant's LC's where when you walk in you know you're in a barbecue establishment there is no wait staff mm -hmm. nobody bringing your food you pick up a tray you go through the line and then you sit down <laughs> and, when, and when you leave there is no doubt because everybody can smell the barbecue on you uh, when you I leave. They it. already know when you've been. They say, oh, you've been to Gates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bob, do you, do, you, do you grill yourself? Do you barbecue at home? Do you barbecue? You know, I, I used to a hot dog, hamburger, and I was a Because, <laughs> you know, with all that... I was about the extent of my barbecue culinary abilities. And so, now, with all these great cases in town, now, if I want barbecue, I go to one of them and let them do it. Let the professionals do it. I don't, I don't dibble and dabble in it anymore. Okay, uh, Bob, just uh, one quick one, last one from me. Um... 
I know down in Philadelphia they have Bulls Barbecue, which is run by Greg Lozinski, and I think in Baltimore they have Boobs Barbecue from Book Powell. Does Kansas City uh, in, in the stadium there, uh, Cotham Stadium, have a barbecue uh, concession? They do have concessions, but they're one of these folks that I named on earlier. There were a couple of those, couple of guys, uh, the great uh, Bobby Bell, who used to play for the Kansas City Chiefs, had a really good barbecue place. He closed it, shut it down some years ago. They had a great barbecue place, though. They had multiple locations in the city at one point in time. And, um, you know, but yeah, they've got, um, I think Arthur Bryant is in both stadiums, where so you can get barbecue in both stadiums. Um, and so, yeah, they got some 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 concession ears there as well. I, I am. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry, we're going to have to end this soon. Uh, uh, I got to go eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, one, one, one last thing on the Negro League Museum. Uh, people wanted to read up on the Negro Leagues. Any uh, any books that you would recommend they they pick up? Yeah, there are a couple. My my favorite that I always recommend, and I think it's one of the great titles of all time. Only the ball was white. It's written by Robert Peterson. It is probably the, I guess, the first substantial effort done on the Negro Leagues. And so you can still find that book. Uh, matter of fact, we carry it in our gift shop here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. So you can go to nlbup.com and order the book. Uh, Buckle Neal's I Was Right on Time is one of my favorites. And a book written by Kadir Nelson, which is actually, guys, a children's book. And he uses this beautiful painting that he is the artist behind. Amazing paintings to illustrate the book. But then he also wrote the book. And the book is entitled We Are the Ship. And it is outstanding as well. So those are three that I would highly recommend. There are so many other great titles out there for those who really want to delve into this very rich history. And, and again, if your travels bring you to Kansas City, you've got to stop in and experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Absolutely. Um, oh, it we, is we, we absolutely will. And, and I'm not uh, shy, as you probably can tell. I'll come right to your door. <laughs> and and say, I'm here, Bob. Let's go eat. <laughs> come on, come on. Absolutely. We got some ribs. We ready. We'll be ready. Uh, so, Bob, this has been, uh, Jeff and I, uh, we're so excited. Yes. Yeah. We we were so excited to do this. You know, we are true baseball fans, and that's the thing. We're just, we, we love the game, and, and the Negro Leagues are such a part of it. And we just, we're so thrilled that you joined us. Thank you so much. Thank well, you very much. Like I said, it's an honor, honor to be a part uh, of the show. Good luck with the podcast. Uh, and if I can ever be of any assistance, please don't have a big ask. Thank you Thank so you much, Bob. Well, that ends this episode of Baseball and Barbecue. We are thrilled, absolutely thrilled, that we got the opportunity to talk to Bob Kendrick the president of the Negro Leagues Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, about baseball and barbecue. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. This has been a thrill. So thank you, Jeff. And uh, yeah, I want to, yeah, again, thanks to Bob Kendrick for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute thrill. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We really appreciate his time that he gave to us. So thank you.
hit that ball. And when he swung his bat, the crowd went wild because he knocked that ball a solid mile. Yeah, boy. Yes, yes, Jackie hit that ball. Satchel Page is mellow, so is Caponello. New commando bit too. But it's a natural fact when Jackie comes to bat, the other team is through. Did you see Jackie Robinson hit that? 